Chapter 17 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 17 Polnitz had motives enough of resentment against the Porporina to seize this opportunity to revenge himself. Still he did nothing, his character was eminently cowardly, and he had not the strength to be wicked except with those who gave themselves up to him. The moment he was made to know his true place he became timid, and one would have said he experienced an involuntary respect for those whom he could not succeed in deceiving. He had even been seen to quit those who flattered his vices in order to follow with hanging ears those who trod him underfoot. Was it the feeling of his weakness or the remembrance of a youth less vile? We would wish to believe that in the most corrupted soul something still discloses the existence of better instincts stifled and remaining only in the state of suffering and remorse. It is certain that Polnitz attached himself for a long time to Prince Henry, pretending to take part in his vexations, that he had often excited him to complain of the bad treatment of the king, and had set him the example in order that he might afterwards report his words to Frederick, even embittering them so as to increase the anger of the latter. Polnitz had performed this infamous part for the pleasure of doing it, for at the bottom he did not hate the prince. He hated no one unless it was the king who dishonored him more and more without enriching him. Polnitz, therefore, loved deceit for its own sake. To deceive was a flattering triumph in his eyes. He had, moreover, a real pleasure in speaking ill of the king and in making others do the same. And when he came to report those evil sayings to Frederick, even while boasting of having provoked them, he rejoiced internally at being able to play the same trick with his master by hiding from him the happiness he had experienced in laughing at him, betraying him, revealing his caprices, his follies, his vices, to his enemies. Thus both parties were duped by him, and this life of intrigue in which he fomented hatred without precisely serving that of anyone had secret delights for him. Still, Prince Henry had at last remarked that every time he let his bitterness appear before the complacent Polnitz, he found, some hours afterwards, the king more irritated and more outrageous than usual. If he had complained to Polnitz of being put under arrest for twenty-four hours, he saw his condemnation doubled the next day. This prince, as frank as he was brave, as confiding as Frederick was suspicious, had at last opened his eyes to the miserable character of the baron. Instead of prudently managing him, he had overwhelmed him with reproaches, and since that time Polnitz, bowed to the ground before him, had no longer sought to injure him. It even seemed as if he loved him at the bottom of his heart as much as he was capable of loving. He was moved while speaking of him with admiration, and these testimonials of respect appeared so sincere that people were astonished at them as an incomprehensible anomaly on the part of such a man. The fact is that Polnitz, finding him a thousand times more generous and tolerant than Frederick, would have preferred to have him for master perceiving, or vaguely guessing, as did the king, a kind of mysterious conspiracy around the prince, 
he much desired to have a clue to it, and to know if he could depend upon its success sufficiently to unite with it. It was therefore with the intention of acquiring information for himself that he had endeavored to mislead Consuelo. If she had revealed to him the little she knew, he would not have reported it to the king, unless indeed the latter had given him a great deal of money. But Frederick was too economical to have great villains at his command. He had extorted some of this mystery from the Count de St. Germain. He had said to him, with such an appearance of conviction, so much evil of the king, that this skillful adventurer had not been sufficiently on his guard with him. Let us say, in passing, that this adventurer had a tincture of enthusiasm and folly, that if he was a charlatan and even a Jesuit in certain respects, he had at the bottom of all that a fanatical conviction which presented singular contrasts and made him commit many inconsistencies. On carrying Consuelo back to the fortress, Polnitz, who had become accustomed to the contempt which others experienced for him, and no longer remembered that which she had testified towards him, conducted himself quite naively with her. He confessed, without being requested, that he knew nothing, and that all he had said to her respecting the projects of the prince in connection with foreign powers was only a gratuitous commentary upon the strange behavior and the secret relations of the prince and his sister with certain suspected persons. "'That commentary does no honor to the loyalty of your lordship,' replied Consuelo, and perhaps you should not boast of it. The commentary is not mine, answered Polnitz, tranquilly. It had its origin in the brain of the king our master, a diseased and gloomy brain, if there ever was one, when suspicion gets possession of it. As to giving suppositions for certainties, it is a method so sanctioned by the custom of courts and the science of diplomatists that you are quite a simpleton to be scandalized by it. Besides, it was kings who taught it to me, it was they who educated me, and all my vices come from father and son, from the two Prussian monarchs whom I have had the honor to serve, to plead the false in order to get at the truth. Frederick never does anything else, and he is considered a great man. See what it is to be in fashion, while I am treated as a villain because I follow his example. What prejudice! Polnitz tormented Consuelo as much as he could in order to know what had passed between her, the prince, the abbess, Trank, the adventurers, St. Germain and Trismegistus, and a great number of important personages, who he said were united in some inexplicable intrigue. He openly confessed to her that if the affair had any consistency, he would not hesitate to throw himself into it. Consuelo saw clearly that he at last talked with open heart, but as she really knew nothing, she had no merit in persisting in her denials. When Polnitz saw the gates of the citadel close upon Consuelo and her secret, he reflected upon the conduct he had best pursue with regard to her, and at last, hoping she would be willing to give him information if she returned to Berlin in consequence of his good offices, he resolved to excuse her to the king. But at the first word he uttered on the next day, the king interrupted him. What has she revealed? Nothing, sire. In that case, let me alone. I forbade you mentioning her to me. Sire, she knows nothing. So much the worse for her. Beware of ever again pronouncing her name before me. The sentence was proclaimed in a tone which permitted no reply. 
Frederick certainly suffered on thinking of the porporina. There was at the bottom of his heart and conscience a very painful little point which thrilled as when you pass your finger over a small thorn buried in the flesh. In order to avoid this painful feeling, he undertook irrevocably to forget its cause, and he had not much difficulty in succeeding. A week had not passed before, thanks to a strong royal temperament and the servile submission of those who approached him, he did not even recollect that Consuelo had ever existed. Still, the unfortunate was at Spandau. The theatrical season was finished, and her harpsichord had been taken away from her. The king had bestowed this attention upon her on the evening when the audience had applauded her to his beard, thinking to please him. Prince Henry was under arrest for an indefinite time. The abbess of Quinlinburg was seriously ill. The king had been so cruel as to make her believe that Trank had again been taken and buried in his dungeon. Trismegistus and St. Germain had really disappeared, and the sweeper had ceased to haunt the palace. That which her appearance presaged seemed to have received a kind of confirmation. The youngest of the king's brothers had died of exhaustion, consequent upon premature infirmities. To these domestic troubles was added Voltaire's definitive quarrel with the king. Almost all biographers have declared that in this miserable strife the honor remained with Voltaire. On examining the documents more attentively, it may be seen that it does no honor to the character of either of the parties, and that the least mean position is perhaps even that of Frederick. Colder, more implacable, more selfish than Voltaire, Frederick felt neither envy nor hatred, and these burning little passions took from Voltaire the pride and the dignity of which Frederick knew at least how to assume the appearance. Among the bitter bickerings which, drop by drop, brought on the explosion, there was one in which Consuelo was not named, but which aggravated the sentence of voluntary forgetfulness that had been pronounced against her. One evening, Dargens was reading the Paris Gazettes to Frederick, Voltaire being present. There was mention made in them of the adventure of Mademoiselle Claron, interrupted in the midst of her part by a badly placed spectator who cried out to her, louder, summoned to make excuses for the public for having royally replied, and you lower, and finally sent to the Bastille for having maintained her part with as much pride as firmness. The public papers added that this adventure would not deprive the public of Mademoiselle Claron, because during her incarceration, she would be brought from the Bastille under escort to play Phaedre or Chemin, after which she would return to sleep in the prison until the expiration of her punishment, which it was presumed and hoped would be of short duration. Voltaire was very intimate with Hippolyte Claren, who had powerfully contributed to the success of his dramatic works. He was indignant at this occurrence, and forgetting that an analogous and more serious one was passing under his eyes. "'That does no honor to France,' cried he, interrupting Jargens at every word. "'The brute, to accost an actress like Mademoiselle Claron so rudely and so grossly. The booby of a public to wish to force her to make excuses. A woman, a charming woman. The pedants, the barbarians, the Bastille, God's light. Is your eyesight good, Marquis? A woman to the Bastille in this age? For a word full of wit, of taste, and pertinency. For a delightful repartee, 
and that in France. Doubtless, said the king, the clarin was playing Electra or Semiramis, and the public, who did not wish to lose a single word, ought to find favor with Monsieur de Voltaire. At any other time this observation of the king would have been flattering, but it was uttered in a tone of irony that struck the philosopher and reminded him of the awkward mistake he had committed. He had all the wit necessary to repair it. He did not wish to. The king's vexation excited his, and he replied, No, sire, had Mademoiselle Clarin murdered a character written by me, I can never conceive that there is in the world a police so brutal as to drag beauty, genius, and weakness into the prisons of the state. This reply, joined to a hundred others, and especially to bitter sarcasms, to cynical jests, reported to the king by more than one officious Polnitz, brought about the rupture which every one has heard of and furnished to Voltaire the most piquant complaints, the most comic imprecations, the sharpest reproaches. Consuelo was only the more forgotten at Spandau, while after three days Mademoiselle Clarin issued triumphant and adored from the Bastille. Deprived of her harpsichord, the poor child armed herself with all her courage to continue her singing and her composition in the evening. She succeeded and soon perceived that her voice and the exquisite justness of her ear even improved with this dry and difficult exercise. The fear of mistakes made her much more circumspect. She listened more to herself, which required a labor of memory and of excessive attention. Her manner became broader, more serious, more perfect. As to her compositions, they assumed a more simple character, and she composed in her prison some airs of a remarkable beauty and a majestic sadness. Still, she soon felt how prejudicial the loss of her harpsichord was to her health and the calmness of her mind. Experiencing the necessity of occupation without respite and not able to repose from the agitating and stormy labor of production and execution by the more quiet employment of reading and investigation, she felt the fever slowly kindle in her veins and sorrow invade all her thoughts. That active character, happy and full of affectionate expansion, was not made for isolation and the absence of sympathy. She would perhaps have sunk under a few weeks of this cruel discipline had not Providence sent her a friend there where she certainly did not expect to find one. End of chapter 17 Read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown, 1985-86